It may surprise you, or maybe it doesn't, but I was once a dove. I don't mean that in a Buddhist reincarnation type sense, that thing. I'm, I'm not into that. But I once, as a child, played the part of a dove in the story of Captain Noah and his amazing floating zoo. Right? And I had that really important special part in the story, obviously, being the dove. So towards the end, I had to flap my wings and go out into the congregation. Right? And then having been out in the congregation, I'd flap my wings some more and go down the other side because, you know, the first time it didn't work. You know, and, uh, and my role was to bring back the olive branch that said there was land, there was hope, there was a future for all those people and animals on the ark. I say an olive branch. It was intended to be a few rhododendron leaves cut from uh, my parents' front garden. Unfortunately, when I flew up the second aisle and paused at the bit that I was supposed to extract the branch from my sleeve, you know, in true majestic, you know, ah, here we are. I realized I couldn't find the branch. <laughs> it was gone. It, it wasn't there. I imagined that in my dramatic flapping of wings, that perhaps it had flown off somewhere. Actually, it got stuck further up the sleeve. I had it all along. I just couldn't find it. And uh, having lost the branch, I imagine that there was probably about 60 children in the, the junior church at that time. And they were left without any biblical knowledge of the origin of the symbol of peace. <laughs> so it's worth bearing in mind that the peace represented in early Christianity by... Um, the dove and the branch that we get from the story of Noah, is not necessarily the absence of conflict, which we often associate it with today, but is the inner peace, the peace of the soul that we get from the presence of God coming on the believer. It's that tying up of that story of the dove and the olive branch in Noah in Genesis and the dove alighting on Jesus at his baptism. God is here and gives us hope and peace. In our passage today, the presence of God among the people of earth is revealed. John the Baptist sees this vision. The Holy Spirit descending as a dove on Jesus. Though, of course, this was not the actual 
baptism of the Spirit on Jesus, but symbolic of that presence already being there. The dialogue up to this point had been about baptism. Jesus requesting that John would bring his water baptism of repentance to him. And John's refusal saying, no, that's the wrong way around. I need to receive your baptism, the baptism that he had earlier been talking of and preaching to the people, a baptism of the Spirit, a baptism of fire. And then Jesus says, no, no, no. We have to do it this way round. It really was John's role to prepare the way for his cousin by not just baptizing others, that baptism of repentance, but the Lord too. I say his cousin. We are, of course, privileged to have a Bible, a library full of books. We have four Gospels that we can read. Mark, Luke, and John, as well as Matthew. And so we know about that relationship, that relationship that we sometimes hear of during the time of Advent in the, in the run-up to Christmas. We have discovered the family relationship between the preparer of the way and the one who is the way. Jesus, we know from Matthew, has been conceived by the Holy Spirit. However, it is in Luke, we also see the action of the Holy Spirit on the family of John the Baptist that, and how the two are connected. We see the Holy Spirit on John in his mother's womb as he leaps for joy at Mary's voice. This passage is not really about the Holy Spirit coming on Jesus. He is already Emmanuel, God with us. Nor is it about John having the discernment of who Jesus is at this crucial verse where there is the vision and the word from the Father. Because he already knows about Jesus, that he is the one that he's been preparing for. The dove's presence, his descending, indicates the Spirit's anointing, but it is a Spirit that is already there. There's no physical or spiritual change of Jesus' status as he receives the baptism. But the symbology is crucial. We have the voice of the Father, the descending of the Spirit, and the presence of the Son. We have the Trinity being able to be seen by the one who has been preparing the way. This is the moment where we see the God who is one 
but three. And that voice, this is my son whom I love, whom I love. With him I am well pleased. The other gospels have the words a a touch different. You are my son. A, A message from the father to the son, to Jesus. But Matthew has it recorded in the way of uh, the transfiguration, which he'll record later on in chapter 17. He has it not as an assurance to Jesus, but as an assurance to John and to the world. A reassurance to us readers that the Baptist has interpreted it correctly. He has behaved the right way. And that Jesus has done the right thing too. And John has not had any doubts about who Jesus was. But we do establish something. The Father loves the Son. Jesus is not sent to earth as if it was a punishment or to do a chore. It doesn't come because there's any uh, sense of dislike, as there sometimes is in family relationships. Any family difficulty, that's not it. He comes as a gift and sign of the Father's love for the world. And is making that known. This passage is about God's love. God's love for Jesus and God's love for you. Love is one thing. But well pleased? We, those of us that are parents, might be pleased with a young child when they're doing something good. Mightn't we? And as they grow older, we might be pleased in other things too. We might be pleased in their decision to follow Christ. We might, as they become an adult, be pleased with seeing them making responsible decisions. Thinking of others might make us pleased. Reaching out to those in need. There might be many things that make us pleased. But being pleased and being loved are two different things, aren't they? We are always loved. We don't always please. The son has done something here that pleases the father. He'll always love him. But here he is pleased. He has shown humility before John. And respect of that need in society for repentance. He's shown deference to the slightly older cousin's message. To that responsible role that the Baptist has. And identifies himself before 
the public as a follower of God's call for renewal. Jesus has shown an awareness of culture and acknowledged that it is time for his earthly ministry to begin. In Matthew's gospel, we've had 30-odd years of silence. In Luke, maybe about 20. But even so, this is it. This is the beginning of something new, and the Father is pleased that that is happening. John the Baptist had earlier declared that this is one whose sandals I am unworthy to carry, whose shoes I cannot untie. But yet we are seeing a a demonstration that this one that he's been preparing the way for is one that at the end of the earthly ministry will still be seen to be a servant, will still be seen to be one that bows down and washes feet, one that will even take the weight of the world's sin upon his shoulders as he goes to the cross. This is what makes the Heavenly Father well pleased with the Son who has come to earth. He is the one that says, I serve. We can be God's children, male and female from every background. We can be adopted into his family when we choose to believe, repent, and make Christ Lord of our life. At that moment, the Holy Spirit will come on us and will mark us as set apart. From that moment that we make the decision, the Holy Spirit will be within us. That's not necessarily at the baptism in water that we can do here in the baptistry. In fact, it would come before that. Our baptism is in water is an outward sign of a change in our life that has taken place. And that's something of what the dove coming and descending upon Jesus is in this story. It's an outward sign that John sees of something that happened earlier. So we can be children. And we are loved by God. You are loved. God loves his son and God loves us. And there's nothing that we can say, nothing that we can do that changes that love that God has. There's nothing that could cause God to love us more than he already does. It doesn't matter how much we do in the church. He couldn't possibly love us more than he already does. He loves us fully. And there's nothing that we could do that could 
cause him to love us less. However wrong we've been, however bad that thing is, whatever our failures in life, God continues to love us and care for us and desire the best thing for us. That's why Jesus has come into the world. Not because we're perfect, we're not. We are people that fail. We are people that get things wrong. We are people who sin. And that's why Jesus came. Because it's not healthy people that need the doctor. As Jesus put it. The third part is where we sometimes get unstuck. We are his children. He loves us. But does he like the things that we say and do? Do we make him well pleased? In our hearts is the love for others in the way that he has loved us. When it comes to that day when we will be judged and separated sheep from goats, as it says in Matthew 25. You know, will we be at the right hand there? Will we have fed the hungry and welcomed the stranger? Or will we be those on the other side? who he is displeased about, people who have not been faithful, people who made a commitment to love, those that said, Lord, Lord, praising his name, but then went and did their own thing, that sang the song in church, but didn't sing the song in their life. People who didn't see themselves as servants, but as ones who should be served. Jesus challenged John, saying it is proper to fulfill all righteousness. That was why he was going to be baptized, to fulfill all righteousness. And it's, why we need to live as God's people. Righteousness is a word that's often used in Matthew's gospel. And it's not simply um, complying with it in a legality, in a tick box manner. Yep, followed the rule. That's all right. That's fine. Nor is a righteousness about being good, being on time. Doing things the way that gets the nod of approval from others. The righteousness of the gospel is living the way of Jesus. Showing his love 
following all that he teaches. It's about being a disciple. And yes, being a disciple will get things wrong. Certainly the disciples in the Gospels get things wrong. But it's about learning and growing and following the way. We are called to live and serve, to be the children, to know that we are loved, to share that love with others, and to do what is pleasing to the Lord. Sometimes we get it right. Often we might get it wrong. But it's how we respond to that error. Do we learn and grow? If so, then that reflects a faithful character, a character that is pleasing to God. If we live the way of Jesus, if we seek to fulfill righteousness rather than being self-righteous, then the Father will not only see us as children and love us, but be pleased in who we are. Amen. We struggle in our journey of life. We might find many challenges before us, but God sends his spirit to guide us, lead us, and equip us to be his people.